This is Framed, a podcast where a group of friends get together once a week to talk about movies, what we liked about them, what we didn't like, and how they're made. I'm Elliot. I'm Robert. And I'm Brennan. On this week's episode of Framed, we take a look at The Conversation, 1974 Francis Ford Coppola film about, you guessed it, a conversation. So this is the last of our uh, our uh, movies for Thriller Month, um, and this was our wild card, which means that none of us had had ever seen this before. This was our everybody's first time. I went in super cold on this mm-hmm. one. So yeah, me too. Uh, I'm I'm very excited to hear your guys's thoughts because I certainly have some. Well, before we get to that, let's uh, hear from uh, some contemporary reviews when this this came out in in '74. Uh, Roger Ebert uh, at the time gave this four out of four stars and uh, described uh, Gene Hackman's portrayal of Harry Call as one of the most affecting and tragic characters in the movies. Um, Frederick and Marianne Broussat said that this film grapples with the moral issue at stake in a country where technology has outstripped our knowledge of how to use and control it. And in a in a rare uh, negative review, Fred Topol of About.com said, Outdated techno thriller, Hackman is great, but it doesn't hold up. And uh, the Rotten Tomatoes for this is, uh, is, is pretty overwhelming. It's, it's 96%. And Rotten Tomatoes wow, says, uh, This tense, paranoid thriller presents Francis Ford Coppola at his finest and makes some remarkably advanced arguments about technology's role in society that still resonate today. Um, yeah, so, so like you, Robert, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to talking about this with you guys. I, I, this was definitely not the movie I was expecting going into it, but, um, yeah, well, why don't you go ahead and open us up, Robert? Sure. So, like I said, went in completely cold and right away, the opening sequence of this movie just reminds you why Coppola is Coppola. Yeah. Like it's immediately you're just pulled in Mm -hmm. um the visuals throughout this uh movie i thought were extremely strong um but i did take some issues with it towards the middle and end Uh, Mm -hmm. i think that the plot uh didn't treat the audience as highly as it could have Mm -hmm. so uh overall i really enjoyed watching it but i do have some negatives with this one so i'm kind of excited to get into those with you guys what about you brennan well i'm probably going to be the odd duck out i feel like today um i where you were discussing about the visuals i did enjoy a lot of the visual a lot of the shots um but there is quite a few i it was very slow Mm. uh it took me a while it took me two watches to actually finish it Mm. i only got halfway the first time and then finished i started again from the beginning and watched it all the way through today um it took me about about halfway through until i actually like got into the plot and the film and stuff i didn't find it as much of a thriller as our other films um not until about where he, the one of the couples talks about them coming and killing them. Mm-hmm. 
about someone coming and killing them. Um, that was about whenever it kind of picked up for me. Um, yeah. But I didn't hate it. Not one of my favorites. Mm, okay. Yeah, so um, I think I'm in the ballpark with you guys. Um, I'm, I'm actually kind of in the same mindset as you, Brennan. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, there's, there's definitely aspects of this film that I, I really, really like, like, um, uh, the sound design in this was, was pretty phenomenal. Um, mm. all, you know, Gene Hackman's performance was, I, I think, you know, probably the standout performance in this. Um, and I, I want to talk about his character, uh, when we get into this. Um, but yeah, no, I, I also thought that this, this did kind of drag a little bit in the middle. Um, I, like I, you know, people online describe it as a, you know, a thriller, but like, I think this is probably the slowest of, of the four movies we watched this month. Um, I like, it was definitely not a nail biting edge of your seat. Oh my gosh, everybody's going to die sort of movie. Like it, there, there was some long stretches where nothing happens and, and, you know, <clears throat> I mean, it, it seems very intentional. It doesn't seem like it was like Coppola didn't know what he was doing or, or something like that. But yeah, it was not as, um, as tense as I was expecting, but I mean, I, I didn't hate it. Uh, it was just definitely not the sort of movie that I expected. And I, I might warm up to it on a second viewing in the future, but, um, yeah, it, it did kind of have that, um, uh, like eat your vegetables sort of feel of, of like, this is a classic film that everybody regards as like, you know, one of the best. And, and so, you know, you sort of feel an obligation to like it, but I mean, I, I, I did like it overall, I guess I was just like, I, I, yeah, I'm aspects of it. I, I think were, you know, weren't, weren't, didn't work, for didn't you. work for me. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So as usual, uh, I think we can just kind of step through the plot and, uh, yep. Just stop wherever we, feel like it and, and talk about stuff so the the protagonist of this is a a surveillance expert uh by the name of harry call played by gene hackman um and we learn over the course uh well actually let me back up let's talk about the opening scene because I, I think this was yeah please <laughs> a very striking uh way to start the film um i i mentioned the the sound design um, a minute ago. And I, I think that that like jumped out to me immediately with this was just the, the way that like bits of conversations are, are overlapped and mixed together. And we really get a, a sense of, of being there in that, in that park. Um, but also like the, I thought that the, um, uh, audio effects to, to give you the sensation that you were listening to all of this through surveillance equipment was, was extremely effective. Yeah, not only that, they shot it on extremely long lenses to mm. give you that feeling of, yeah. of you know, being a voyeur, you know, watching yeah. us and not being right up there with the actors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I, I really enjoyed that. I think that that um, that voyeuristic mindset persists throughout the rest of the film. Actually, like I, I, I kind of enjoyed the sort of meta like almost like a rear window sort of commentary of how we as the audience are surveilling these people. And I, yeah, Coppola makes it really obvious in a few places where like, especially when we're in, um, 
Harry's apartment that the camera will like just stay fixed in one spot, but then we'll like, you know, almost randomly just kind of like pan from side to side like a surveillance camera would. Um, yeah, I thought that was extremely effective. Uh, I think it's important to remember that or at least mention, not probably remember, but the cinematographer uh, that shot the opening is not the same cinematographer for the rest of the film. Oh, um, so uh, yeah, it, it's Heskel Wexler uh, who did like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf mm. and the Thomas Crown Affair, like a very, very, you know, unarguably talented cinematographer. Yeah, uh, shot that opening. And then um, uh, what's his name? Bill Butler real quick. Bill Butler, yeah, who, of course, shot Jaws and Grease and a million mm-hmm. popular films as well, and is no slap, shot the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that it was interesting that they didn't go back and reshoot the opening, because I mm-hmm. do think the opening has a very different feel from the rest of the film. Yeah. Um, I, I sort of, yeah, go ahead. I think that it still works. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the opening, you know, we we're literally watching a conversation that's going to be the plot mm-hmm. going forward. Like we're going to continue to circle back to this. Yeah. Um, so I think having a heightened sense during this key moment isn't a bad thing. And it, it does actually work for the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, this opening scene is uh, Harry with a, a team of a couple other uh, surveillance experts are, are recording this couple that are, are seemingly walking around in circles uh, in this park where there's a lot of other noise going on. Um, musicians are playing. There's like snatches of, of recorded music and they're, they're trying their best to, to hear what this couple is saying without being spotted. Um, and so we, we, get these fragments of their conversation that over the course of the film, Harry and his assistant, um, what was his name? Stan His the, the guy yes. from dog day afternoon. Yep. <laughs> um, they, they work on extracting this conversation from all, all the recordings that they got from the park. Um, but we, we also spend a lot of time delving into Harry's character, like who he is as a person, um, we learn right off the bat that he's extremely secretive about his personal life, um, even going so far as to lie about things like his age and whether or not he has a, a phone in his apartment. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I wanted to discuss his character a little bit because I, I thought this was one of the more effective aspects of the film. Like I, I felt like we get a really hmm. good sense of a, like him as like a three dimensional, like living, breathing character in this. That's interesting because to me, I think his character was one of the weaker points of this. Okay. Um, He, he seems almost like a caricature. Hmm. Uh, He doesn't seem very three dimensional to me. He seems very one dimensional. Like he's an awkward, uh, secretive on the verge of, crazy person and we Mm -hmm. get a little bit of backstory that explains it as we go but it almost feels as if we are trying to 
justify this character through mm. some backstory rather than find a character and tell their story. Yeah. See, I but I what, was sort of taking it from the standpoint of he's sort of this enigma that gets slowly unraveled over the course of the the film because he's he's like extremely not forthcoming with details about his personality but even though we're not learning facts about him like we're learning a lot about him through how he interacts with other people like the yeah. uh, the scene with his girlfriend where he you know we've established like in just the previous scene that it was his his 44th birthday i think because we saw that birthday mm -hmm. card that he got but then he tells her that he's 42 and, and she's like it's implied that they've been together for a while but she like still doesn't know anything about him and so he's he's like super super reserved and and reclusive um and i think it's interesting that we a little later on in the film we learn that he's you know sort of he's got this guilt complex over his job um because of a a previous job that that went wrong after he he turned in his surveillance work and so we have a few scenes that establish that he's a devout catholic and you know, goes to confession and, and tries to work through like what he does for a living and, and how it, how it impacts other people and whether or not he's responsible for that. Um, which sort of gets into some of the themes of this film, I think of, of, you know, the, yeah. the, the bounds of, of like what's okay with, you know, technology and, and, you know, voyeurism and like spying on other people's private conversations and, and, and whatnot. Um, yeah, so I mean, I I get what you're saying though. Like, I could see you could kind of look at him as like a a stereotype kind of like paranoid recluse kind of person. But um, well, I want to take a look at the the scene with his girlfriend that yeah. you brought up. Um, it strikes me as like a really weird scene just to begin <laughs> yeah. with. Yeah. Um. So we're supposed to believe that he keeps this and i use that word purposefully like he keeps this girl in this apartment he's paying her way mm -hmm. um that's right yeah i forgot about that and she just you know exists behind the door for whenever he shows up mm -hmm. which is very bizarre and doesn't seem realistic yeah um See, and then, i didn't i didn't even take it whenever i was watching this I didn't take it that they were even dating, to be honest. I took it as someone he's basically paying to sleep with. Mm, a prostitute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely some... Uh, maybe maybe sugar daddy might be the nicer way of yeah. putting that. But, but yes, uh, there's this weird you know, implication that that's exactly what he's doing. Um, but uh, I don't know that I took it that he was lying about his age to her. I think I took it that whatever card he got was incorrect, but he was mm. being truthful about his age to her. So that's interesting that you took it the other way. Yeah. But, I, yeah. I mean, I that was just sort of because the, the 44 number stuck in my brain. And then in the next scene, he tells her that he's 42. So the, immediately. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've also established that he is like, he's got like three locks on his apartment door and he's got like a, 
security system for his apartment, which I, I have no idea how expensive that would have been to do in the in the <laughs> 70s. Um, right. And uh, like he gets into that argument with his landlord about like, well, how did you get in here? And, you know, like from now on, don't you know, I'm going to be sending all my mail to a P.O. box. So he's like, you know, we've, we've established that he's like extremely just does not want to give out like anything give give anybody else an inch about himself and going back to the thing with his girlfriend is like he does shut her down eventually like he's like stop asking mm-hmm. me questions so um and i mean he also lies to her about like being a, a freelance musician which we we yeah. see that he he plays by himself in his apartment but you know like that's not you know being a musician is not what he does so <laughs> yes he he certainly lies to her um but I think the the bigger issue with that scene is like she, one, where is he going? Because he enters the apartment and it looks like he decides to walk down to her door, mm-hmm. like he's going somewhere else. So, just off the bat, it seems very weird, almost dreamlike. Mm. Um, yeah, and then like this character serves only the the purpose of giving us insight into harry mm-hmm. um and then she's dropped and forgotten yeah she never um, comes it's, back it it's a very weird and odd choice to yeah me. i i almost wonder if it was included to throw us off the scent later when um i'm trying to remember what her name was the other the the girl from the party that um is like really interested in him that um, spoilers um, i guess but <laughs> turns out that she was just she just wanted to steal the tapes from him um like i feel like because we we saw like almost the identical thing happen with with Terry Gar's character that um we were were you know like i i wasn't suspicious immediately that she's like you know a spy basically and just wants to sleep with him to to steal the the tapes yeah, so I don't want to jump too far ahead, but that was my biggest issue with the whole film. Okay. Was he's this super, like, oh, I can't let anyone in on anything, and then he brings a, a car full of known surveillance wires, surveillance people, into his private area. Mm-hmm. Like... It, yeah, I, it I turned to my up. wife during that scene and I was like, uh, surely someone's about to steal his tapes. Like, <laughs> right. why are we not concerned about that? Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, it, I think that's go on. No, it, it wasn't like that thought did cross my mind. Like he, you know, somebody was going to try to pull one over on him while they're all in his, his office. But like it, it wasn't established to me. Like. I mean, he's clearly not working for, like, the, the government, for example. So it wasn't established to me, like, well, are these tapes classified? Or is, is this just mm-hmm. sensitive information that his client doesn't want to get out? Like, so, like, could he play the tapes for his friends, like, and have, you know, like, share his work with them? Like, I, it, that wasn't established very clearly, I thought, like, because I, I was like, well, okay, so is he going to, like, show off and show, like, this pristine recording that he got and like wow them all or, or is he you know gonna not show them anything because he you know is so incapable of 
you know, share, sharing details about himself. Yeah. Um, and actually, like, that goes to a, um, an interesting topic that I, I wanted to bring up about his character. Um, I, I'm... I'm trying to find the quote. Yeah, in in Roger Ebert's review, he calls Harry out as being bad at his job. And I thought that was interesting because like it, in the film, everybody talks about Harry as he's like the, the best of the best and he's like the surveillance yeah. expert. But like, as as you guys pointed out, like he, he makes some pretty stupid mistakes. Like he, you know, lets somebody steal the tapes from him. That other guy, um, Moran, I think his name was, the... Yeah, the, he he like plants that pen on him and he pulls one over on Harry. It's like he, he makes some pretty stupid mistakes in this. So like, do you guys think that he is actually bad at his job? And, and is that why he is like so unwilling to to share details about himself? I was getting this feeling of because where they were talking about how well he does at this job, how good he was. But he's also at this point, I also had the feeling of. He's getting tired of it. He doesn't mm. want to do this anymore. He's burnt out. Yeah. Which, in turn, I mean, if you're getting this tired of doing this job, you're going to end up making mistakes. Yeah. Um, granted, the fact that he's so private and brought them to his place was a bit extreme. Mm-hmm. But then, like, the little mistakes, like, with the pin, that sort of thing, um, is so minuscule of a mistake in some aspects that, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm telling you, whenever I was, granted, I didn't make, I, w- I kind of found his character relatable in some aspects, too, because um, I've been at a job where I was really good at it. I was making good money, blah, 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 blah. Then I just got to the point where I just didn't care. Mm-hmm. It's hard to make as big of a mis- mistakes when you're working in a kitchen, but you can. But it's just one of those, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you know, that didn't strike me while I was watching it, but now that you bring it up, I, I can see, you know, that burnout in his character. I, I think it's a combination of that and like the guilt he's feeling over the, the job that went, that went bad that we, we learn about over the course of the, over the course of the film. Um, I don't know that I think that he's bad at his job. Um, I think it's very obvious that he's, he's good at his job. You know, he's, he can, bug anything yeah he's definitely Um, got the technical skills yeah i think he's bad at being a human Mm -hmm. and responding to things i the pen didn't bother me at all actually that was my favorite i thought you know they it was obvious it was right there and i didn't i didn't see it coming you know Mm -hmm. um so i thought that was you know well written and well executed you know it was the movie not cheating I enjoyed that. Um, but the, the, like, I just did not understand. He's so uncomfortable at the convention. Mm-hmm. And then he's bringing a car full of people back to his place. Like, yeah, it, it, it just 
it felt like, oh, well, we need to go back to his place, so we're going to go back to his place now. Like, it didn't feel earned. It just felt yeah. like, here we are. Like, I think if, if it had been, like, moved to, like, just someone else's apartment or hotel room, like, it would have maybe felt more believable, maybe. Yeah, I think that everybody it, yes. going back to his the, the, the office set seemed a little uh, strange. Convenient. Convenient, yeah. yeah. Um, See, I got... I got a little confused at this part. So where was the, where was the, remind me, where is the convention held? I mean, it was just, either of you remember that? In the city, I think. Yeah, at some convention center. I don't know that it's spelled out. Not not exactly, but I mean, town-wise, because I got the understanding when I was watching this that the convention was out of town. I don't believe so. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't remember if they say one way or the other, if it is. Because then I thought, because I thought was whenever him and the other girl were talking at the, at what ended up being his place, um, was it him or her that talked about being from New York? But I um, thought that, they were in that San comes up That comes up in the, in the party scene that he, he was from New York originally. So just originally, yeah, mm-hmm. like in a, in a okay. past life, like because everybody's trying to pry details out of him, and we it's established that he was from New York, but you know he doesn't volunteer any more information. Okay. The other thing is, I mean, it is they're in San Francisco, right? Is that that's where this takes place, right? So, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I I've been to San Francisco, and there's there's a bunch of like other cities that are clustered around the Bay area. Right. And, and so like, you know, they might've mentioned another city, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was like on the other end of That's the country true. or something. Right. Um, yeah. While we're talking about the party scene, the, the, the thing that bugged me the most about this was, um, when Stan pulls out the chalkboard to explain what their assignment is, because at this point, this was like an hour into the film um, and I felt like at this point that it was unnecessary to have like a, a formal exposition about what the what they were doing, because I, I felt like I was up to speed on what they were what they were trying to do at that point. Did, did you guys feel like that was unnecessary? It didn't really bother me at all. I thought <laughs> that the purpose of that was not to explain what they were doing as exposition, but to explain that Harry is the best and Mm. to open that up of like, yeah, these other experts don't know how to do it. Right. That that's true. Yeah. I, I just sort of felt like when he was explaining about the park and where everything was positioned, I was like, okay, yeah, I already got that. Like we don't need to go over (laughs) it again. Um, so anywho, so the, over the bulk of the, uh, the first half of the film, I would say we were watching Harry um, sort of can sort of filter these tapes and, and mix them and, and put all the audio together to try to make a complete conversation. Um, and he he filters out this one particular piece of audio when they were standing next to a, a street musician and he's able to isolate the, the conversation. And uh, he hears the the couple say he'd kill us if he got the chance which is significant, but we don't know why yet. Um, yeah. And <clears throat> Harry um, 
makes a he's about to deliver the tapes to uh, his client who's only referred to as the director um <laughs> which i'm not i feel like there's probably some kind of meta reading of this but i i couldn't like come up with anything interesting for like having a character in a film called the director um but mm. anyway uh, so the director is not in and uh because Harry is nervous about what's going to happen with these tapes because of his previous uh, mission that that um, d- d- ended up, you know, with people killed at the end. He's he's significantly nervous about just dropping this off sight unseen. Um, and so he he says, no, I'll come back later. Um, also, we should talk about Harrison Ford being in this. I didn't know he was in this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, that was, was a, a big shock. <laughs> fun little surprise. <laughs> little pre-Star Wars uh, Harrison Ford for you. Um, do you guys remember that um, that movie intersection game that we used to play with the? Uh, it's like okay, c- connect this actor to this actor. Yeah, uh, I feel oh, like yeah, this would be yeah. a, a good movie to use for that game because you had uh, Harrison Ford was in it, and then um, a bunch of people from The Godfather had um yep robert duvall and and um the guy i'm I'm gonna look him up the guy from john cazal he plays fredo i think and yeah. so yeah a lot a lot of people in this that were uh like i guess francis ford coppola regulars um so anyway i thought i thought that was kind of interesting so i feel like the most suspenseful part of this movie was actually them figuring out about the conversation granted we only get we get the first half of the movie actually discussing them editing the tape so they can get exactly what they were talking about yeah but just getting just any time that there was a part they had to edit it was like oh where's this conversation going Mm. what's like it kind of kept building up to, like you said, whenever it talked about someone coming to kill them, that I feel like was the, I mean, uh, and up until the very, very, very end mm-hmm. where we find out what happened, I feel like that was the only suspenseful part of this. Yeah, I Even think with the hotel room on the table. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, personally, I felt like because whenever he went in and there was like you didn't see any sign of struggle or anything. I was like, obviously, this uh, director or whatever, um, just because he I mean, he was we don't know how long he was asleep in his own room. Mm-hmm. I just took it as, oh, this guy cleaned up, yada, yada, yada. Though I will say whenever the final, which we'll get to later, final ending happened, I was a little shocked. I wasn't expecting the ending to happen. Yeah, so maybe but, maybe we should back up a bit and, and give give a bit of right, context yeah. for this since we're getting into the ending now. Um, the So he, he does eventually meet up with the director and it's it's revealed that the he'd kill us if he got the chance um, is interpreted as, oh, this is the director's wife who is having an affair with this guy that she was walking around the park with. Um, Harry is extremely nervous that he is actually going to kill her. And so he feels extremely guilty 
about taking the money from the director. And so he, over the course of the, their conversation that was recorded in the park, he figures out where they're planning on meeting. Um, and so he, he decides that he's going to, I don't know what his plan was, but he was going to go to the hotel and, and, you know, I guess try to stop them or, or intervene somehow. So he arrives at the hotel and he, he, he books himself into the adjoining room and uh, starts setting up to to spy on on what's going on in the in the next room. We hear shouting, um, and uh, he he goes out on the balcony to to get a closer look. And this this bloody handprint suddenly, you know, somebody throws their hand up on the glass in front of him, and he he gets freaked out and and goes and hides in the bed. Um, did we did anything? jump out to you guys about this scene? Did you feel like this was effective or, or not effective at ratcheting up the tension? I thought that it was a really nice, you know, cranking up to 11 moment. Mm-hmm. That being said, I hated, uh, again, my biggest issue with this film is it's just too convenient at most times. And this also feels like that. He goes to the hotel yeah. to bug the room to listen to what's going on. And then when his fears are brought to life and he hears violence happening, he does nothing. So, like, yeah. why why was he coming? You know, mm-hmm. like, what, what was the point of this? Um, yeah, I mean, so that that, I think it goes me. back to the, the fact that he's not this action movie hero character. He's He's this, you know frightened reclusive paranoid guy that you know i thought that that was was believable that he when presented with everything that he's felt guilty about like it's it's all like it's happening to him a second time now that he would just like curl up into a ball in the in his hotel room yeah but like if that's how he feels about it like why not just call the police like rather than go yourself Mm. why not just be all like Hey, uh, I got a tip staying at the at the Hilton and I'm hearing screaming. You should go and check it out, you know? Yeah, um, I mean, that's a it, good point. That that would probably would have been the more logical thing to do. Um, so it, it just felt a little convenient. To yeah, me. yeah. No, I think I think that's fair. Although at this point in the film, like I was starting to question like what was real. And like if, yes. if any of this was in his head, um, the, the bloody handprint for sure, because I, I want to say that there was some imagery prior to that that was related to the the first case of his that went wrong with the, where the, the three people ended up dead. Like didn't wasn't there like a dream sequence where he there was some, you know, blood or violence or something. Uh, he has a dream sequence where he sees the girl from the conversation and he calls out and says, I had polio as a kid mm-hmm. and almost died and right. wish that I had. Aren't I an interesting three dimensional character? <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's about it for dreams, I think. OK, I want to say that there was like a flashback or, or like some like image of like a bloody handprint before this scene, but I might be remembering it incorrectly. Um, so anywho, the bottom line is I was starting to question like if his, if he was really witnessing this or if he had just become so racked with guilt that, 
he you know he was starting to see things particularly when he actually goes into the the hotel room when he he works up yes. the, the nerve to go next door and he sees that there's nothing i thought that there was some the, the this is where the movie like started to work for me was in the third act here where mm-hmm. like i th- thought that there was some nice like hitchcock fake outs of like you know of course the shower like you know we, we i'm sure we were all thinking about psycho when he, he yep. like looked in the shower but then there was nothing there um and then and then he flushes the toilet <laughs> um and we're treated to this this bizarre scene where the toilet just starts like backing up with like just gallons of blood spilling out onto the, <laughs> the bathroom floor yeah um i don't i i think it's it's kind of open to interpretation i guess i i think that it's at least implied that this was he was hallucinating but what what do you guys think like if it I don't know if you were to commit a murder in in this hotel room. I don't think you would, you know, flush all that blood down the toilet. <laughs> no, that like I very much viewed that whole sequence of him just kind of losing his, yeah, his mind. Right. Um, because it it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like in order for that to be the case, the blood would have had to be in the tank like oh, the, yeah. the basin that then drains point. in like it just it doesn't make any sense so it it had to be uh in his mind thing. we're learning about toilet physics tonight on on framed <laughs> yeah that's yeah. why you tune into frames <laughs> for the quality toilet information <laughs> yeah so and i mean the music definitely helped to solidify that 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 he was just like you know going insane at this point um yeah so then we we find out later that um so he he's he believes that the the wife and and potentially her her lover were were killed in the room like um i think that's what we're led to believe up to this point but then uh he returns to the the office where the director works and he walks past this this limo where he sees that the wife is is actually very much still alive and very quickly he he pieces together that he actually had it backwards that the the director was in fact the target and the the wife and the the guy in the park were 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 planning it as like some kind of like corporate takeover or act of of self-defense maybe because he realizes that he heard the sentence incorrectly and instead of he'd kill us if he got the chance instead it's he'd kill us if he got the chance so that it kind of Mm -hmm. spins it around in a different way i i thought like i i was willing to forgive the 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 switch in the audio because it was clearly not the same audio that we had (laughs) already heard up to this point like it was kind of a knives out sort of thing knives out did the same trick a couple times um did did you get did that bother you guys or were you okay with that i think you've got to give some creative license so i i was very chill with that Mm -hmm. brennan what did you think of this uh this twist here at the end honestly i think i missed that oh yeah um the uh well it was it was definitely in the film Was it after the bloody toilet? Yes. 
yeah, he goes back to the office to, uh, I guess, to see the director and the director is nowhere to be seen because he, he was actually the one who got killed in the in the hotel room. Side note, I guess I didn't finish it like I thought I did. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> well, Whoopsies. sorry for uh, spoiling the end of the movie for you there, Brennan. Really just thought it ended open ended. <laughs> well, it does. It does, um, yes. It yes. does open and open-ended, but later on. Yeah, well, now I feel kind of awkward. I mean, I guess that was the big <laughs> twist. So, I mean, we can go ahead and talk about the last scene unless... Yeah. Yeah, no, go for it. Okay, so... Um, we... Um, so, after Harry comes to this realization um, that he he got it wrong and it was actually the wife who, who killed the director, not the other way around. Um, he sort of just decides to do nothing, um, sort of in, in film noir fashion of, of, you know, the, the protagonist just getting out of it at the end and, and going back up to doing his thing. Um, but then he, back at his apartment, he gets a phone call from, from Harrison Ford who, who tells him that they know that he knows and that he is being watched and that he should not, try anything and they just sort of leave him in his apartment um, well they play him back audio that's right of him playing the saxophone from five minutes before right right so he's playing saxophone and they play the audio back to him as proof that they are in fact recording him <clears throat> and so in this this kind of disturbing final scene he just he just proceeds to take his entire apartment apart bit by bit looking for the bug that they have and he is not able to find it he 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 t dismantles all of his possessions he rips up all the floorboards and peels off all the wallpaper um and just completely dismantles his apartment and is, is unable to find the the hidden bug and then um i guess the implication is that he just kind of gives up because he just goes off to sit in the corner and play a saxophone again. Um, which. So, okay. So to me, this ending felt very seventies of like, kind of like, I don't know, art housey of, of we're not going to give you like a really satisfying, um, catharsis at the end. It's just going to kind of stop. <laughs> Um, yeah, I found this ending after the buildup of seeing him just kind of lose it and, and dismantle his apartment. I thought that the final shot was was pretty underwhelming. Um, OK, what did what did you think about it, Robert? I love a good open ended mm -hmm. ending. <laughs> okay. like uh, I almost always will pick an open ended story over wrapping it up neatly with a bow because life doesn't wrap anything up neatly with a bow. It's yeah. never the end. It's just the end of this moment. And then mm -hmm. there's another moment and another moment. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think this was the best example of a good open-ended story, but I don't think it was a bad example either. I was completely fine with it. The thing that stuck out to me the most uh, with the ending was and I'm curious to hear your opinion of this, Elliot, is I don't know if he, you're supposed to think that his apartment's actually bugged or not. Well, like, yeah, that, I mean, there's, there's a couple interpretations. And right. one is, I think like going back to the, the hallucinations in the hotel, like yep. he might just be imagining 
that that they're they're still listening to him. Yeah. Um, because isn't that like they call him on that secret phone that he has that he keeps in the the desk that he he's like, how did you get this number? Like, so I, yeah. I mean that that stood out to me earlier in the film when he's like, you know, that somehow these people got a hold of his secret phone that nobody knows about. So like, yeah, I think that you could read it as that last phone call maybe didn't even happen. Um, I think that's how I read it, but I don't think you're wrong to read it another way. I think that's one of the beauties of an open-ended story is it leaves room for for debate, for discussion, yeah. for the the movie to live past the credits and, you know, into the car ride home or the restaurant afterwards. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, I, I, so assuming that we we do read it literally, um, where do you guys think that the bug actually was? If if we were to... Saxophone, right? Yeah, I, I, I did look a little bit online to see what, what people thought, and I, there does seem to be a consensus it was in the saxophone. Um, it, it, which, I think if it exists, it has to be in the saxophone, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense, right? But, like, I... The, the interpretation I read, I, I can't take credit for this, is that the ending is sort of that he... he he stops at dismantling the saxophone because that's like the one thing he has left that he takes pleasure in. Like he hates everything else about his life, but he, he likes his saxophone and, but he won't, he, it's like they, they put it in the one place where he won't go basically. Right. So I thought that was, that was kind of a cool, um, read on the, on the ending. Um, and then of course, I mean, I thought that the, the last shot was cool because it, it goes along with, what I was saying earlier that it's like, it's this slow pan left and right, like a surveillance camera, which is either to say that they're still watching him or, or we're the ones who are surveilling him as, as you know, a movie audience. Um, so I thought, I thought the camera work was, was definitely effective at the end, even if it, it did sort of just seem like it stopped and not that it was a, I don't know, like a cathartic sort of ending. Sure. Um, Much like the ending to this episode of Frame, <laughs> it just kind of happens. <laughs> yeah, so um, I guess, w- was there anything else about the film that you guys wanted to talk about? Anything else that jumped out to you? It, it, when you when you actually, like, lay it down in, in, in you know, a sequence of events, it's not that, like, complicated of a film. Yeah, I so I think I probably enjoy this more than you or Brennan, but I do think it's important to remember that this came out right around Watergate, right? Wasn't Watergate early 70s? Yeah, so actually that's an interesting little fun fact tangent is that, yeah, Watergate started in 72, I believe. Um, okay. And this came out in 74 around the time that Richard Nixon resigned. Um, okay. Francis Ford Coppola so, claims this has nothing to do with Watergate because he the script was already written in the 60s before right, Nixon was even yeah. president. So he, he, he kind of resents that people associate it with Watergate, I think. Which is fair, but I think it's impossible to remove culture from the art of the time. Sure. So, like, I I wonder if this came out 10 years earlier or 10 years later if it would be hailed as his second best film or whatever. Mm. 
Um, yeah, just I see what because you're the idea of wiretapping and surveillance wasn't so much to the forefront of the audience at that point. Yeah. Uh, it kind of hit a perfect storm where it was talking about things that, you know, people were very interested in. At the time, so yeah. I think, I think that it's a, uh, a good film and it deserves the praise that it has. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up watching old sixties and seventies films as like the majority of what I was watching. So like this, felt right at pace i didn't think it was particularly slow i thought Mm -hmm. it still had that suspense um but compared to a modern day thriller absolutely i just think they're two different styles yeah Um, yeah that's that's fair i i definitely don't think this was like a a bad film but i it was definitely like i said different from what i was expecting like i mean we had just you know watched two like really tense like white knuckle thrillers before this and um like I, I would even argue that this wasn't even as as tense as like some of Hitchcock's best films, which are also kind of slow burn thrillers. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, definitely different than what I was expecting. But I mean, I was definitely interested in what was going to happen, and I, I wasn't like bored with it. I mean, I guess I couldn't have really turned it off because we were <laughs> we were, you know had to watch it for the the podcast. But I I, I don't know. I w- I was interested in finishing it and seeing um, where it was going. I also, um, I definitely think that this has been a very influential film on, on, um, later movies. Like I, I definitely recognized like its fingerprints on, on other things right away. Um, I don't, I don't think either of you guys have seen better call Saul. Um, but that was the first thing that jumped to mind for me when I watched this is that there's, uh, scenes and characters in, in better call Saul that are, are definitely, um, direct, the inspiration was directly from the conversation. I feel like, um, particularly the final scene in this, uh, where Harry dismantles his apartment. There's a very similar scene in, in better call Saul. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, I agree with you that, um, it did. It definitely feels like it is of its time, you know, definitely not out of place with, with like what was going on at the time. And, like just the filmmaking style of the of the time um i wonder if the the topic of of um surveillance and recorded conversations was more shocking at the time than than it would be for us in 2021 like i think for sure <laughs> you know uh, we we sort of carry around this burden day to day of of you know the possibility that you know we're being recorded at any given moment <laughs> um but I, I that might that probably wasn't on everybody's minds back then and so this this mm-hmm. probably i think there were a lot more outstanding like moral questions about like you know when is it okay to record and like what is you know like that that review said like it, you know has technology gone too far and um you know or do we not know what we should should do with this whereas i think today people just kind of shrug questions like that yeah it's a good point what about you brennan do you, do you have any other closing thoughts on this um not really i'm gonna say um one well, i need to obviously finish it now um <laughs> yeah sorry about that y'all 
dope with what you guys have talked about with that ending. Um, I'm going to probably... That ending probably made up for some other things. If How I'm picturing it, based off of what you guys are talking about, probably would have upped my score mm-hmm. when we do that. Um, so, yeah. So, speaking of score... Uh, what what do you want to give this? And then we can just maybe like add plus one for, for when you go back <laughs> and watch the ending. Right. So my initial score for this was going to be a five or a six. Okay. Because I there were a bunch of aspects like how it was filmed, how it was portrayed, some of the underscore. Like I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the plot and the storyline I've, because I felt like it was dragging. There was with thrillers, the part of thrillers that I like is the more of a suspenseful thriller, mm-hmm. um, or has you on the edge of your seats yeah. throughout, throughout the film. Um, granted with the, by the sound of the ending, I did not see that coming. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's one of those. It, by this, I'm really gonna have to go back and watch it. I am going to watch the ending. Um, but I didn't feel like there were those. Like in Knives Out, we had those prior. Even and with what was the one before that? Searching, searching, yeah. Those two, you could definitely see like certain things that like showed you how they kind of how the ending was going to go. I with other than the technology of the times, like you can obviously misinterpret what they're saying. Yeah, uh, they're talking because of technology. Technology issues. Um, so I'll give, I'm probably give it a hard six and a half. Okay. What about you, Robert? So for me, this film was a good example of what a strong director can do with not a perfect script. Hmm. Um, I thought it was still engaging. I thought it was suspenseful and I, I really did enjoy watching it. Um, I just think that there were some moments that could have definitely been uh, polished a little more. Yeah. um, Particularly with character motivation Mm. throughout the film. Um, But I I think it's a, a really, really fun example of a classic thriller film so i think i would give it probably about an eight okay not the not going to the desert island though it's gonna stay home (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i I think it's interesting that we came away with opposite sort of impressions of of harry's character because yeah like i to me that was kind of the 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 most intriguing element of this um just trying to figure out who this guy is and you know like get you're just kind of sort of led by these you know breadcrumbs throughout the film like trying to learn about him 
Um, I think that this film has enough going for it that I would recommend it to people. Like, I mean, like apart from Harry himself, like I think that the the technical aspects of this are are certainly outstanding. Like the mm. we talked about the camera work, we talked about the sound design. Like I think all of that was just like aces. Um, and um, I I mean I don't know like I it was just like not that tense for the first two acts and then it goes up to 11 in the third act so yeah like i i mean you, you, it does sort of i don't know i don't want to say it tests test your patience but like i i mean i definitely felt like it, it took a while to get to the point um so yeah i don't know i mean it good movie i i definitely like I I could tell it was a, a Francis Ford Coppola film. Certainly like you, you saw his stamp yeah. as a director on it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think I'm going to go with the, uh, a seven on okay. this one. And, uh, no, I will not be taking this to my desert Island. <laughs> All right. Well, so that was a fun way to wrap up thrillers. Um, yeah. moving forward. What do we have next? Elliot, so our next round of films is going to be Coen Brothers films, which Ooh. I'm excited to get into. The Coens are, are um, my one of my favorite, uh, I guess, directing teams. Um, like I, I've, you know, I've seen almost all of their movies. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to discussing them with you guys. Um, so, yeah, that that's what's coming up. Um, thanks for listening. Um, if you, if you enjoyed what you heard, uh, give us a, give us a review on, on iTunes or, or whatever you happen to be listening to this on. Um, we would very much appreciate the feedback. It would be pretty dope. It'd be dope. Heckin' dope. <laughs> dope Um, all right. Well, thanks guys. It's been real. Thanks for having this conversation with us. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for potting, guys. I'll talk to you later. All right. It was great. Bye. Bye.